It's coming to the end of the year 2000, and the living conditions for people in Chechnya are increasingly dire. A recent press release from MSF USA states, these military operations and acts of violence committed against individuals are like a collective punishment, which turns each and every civilian into a suspect and a potential victim. The organization's communication strategy to get word out about the Chechen situation is going well, and there's more press coverage in the international media thanks in part to efforts by the MSF teams in the North Caucasus. We had a meeting with the whole local staff in which we had a kind of debate, saying, is this worth it? MSF could be thrown out, MSF could be shot, and you guys, Chechens, can be arrested and tortured. The initial reaction of the more junior people, the guards and the drivers and so on, was reluctant because they wanted to keep their jobs. And it was the seniors of our team who were pushing with this very proud attitude we are Chechens, these are our people. Communicating this internationally is more important than the programme and we're willing to take this risk. But in Chechnya itself, the situation is getting increasingly dangerous for MSF staff. On the 29th of November 2000, a team of staff from the Caucasus working with MSF Holland is detained for three hours at a checkpoint near Chechnya's western border with Ingushetia. The guards confiscate a number of patient accounts from one employee. They then find she's carrying a copy of MSF's recent report on the politics of terror, and she only just avoids being detained at a holding centre. A few days later, the Russian Federation's intelligence service, the FSB, questions another MSF Caucasus staff member about the regional coordinator for MSF Holland, Kenny Gluck. In an email updating colleagues on the incident the next day, Kenny writes... We know that our phones were being tapped, but we should now assume that there is someone giving reports from among the staff as well. He continues, I would be more worried about potential security problems if they were focusing more on the local staff. I assume they are more interested in me than other expatriates, mostly because of having been here longer, being American, and being more comfortable in Russian. But the incidents are getting more regular and more violent. Soon, two Chechen doctors from MSF Holland's team are attacked and detained for several hours by masked men dressed in fatigues. In another email, Kenny outlines what happens to the two, named here by the initials R and T. Approximately one and a half kilometres from the hospital in the town, an old beige car cut them off and forced them to stop. Four armed men in camouflage uniforms and masks immediately surrounded R's car, ordered them out of the car and demanded R and T's documents. Without looking at the documents, they forced R and T into their car. R protested, explaining that they were doctors and that the attackers were making a mistake, but they did not pay any attention to this. The team is convinced that the assailants are Chechens pretending to be Russian and that they wanted to kidnap an MSF international staff member, so they only release the local staff when none is found. Everyone is hyper-aware of the dangerous security conditions, as this member of MSF North Caucasus staff explains. We had their words voiced up. We were working in a situation where tens, dozens, hundreds of people were going missing every day. There were very few organisations that came to the territory to try and protect the civilian population from impunity. The fact that it wasn't safe, it wasn't secure, was understood by everybody. Practically every one of us has witnessed and come across crossfire or explosions. 
and seeing people arrested at the checkpoints, taken into their special tent, and then taken into their attendant's office. These were places where people would enter and then nobody would know their whereabouts. And that's why we had quite clear tasks and assignments. It was said quite clearly that if anyone feels threatened and afraid, it is his or her choice not to go. But there were no cases where someone refused to go because we had an objective and we were going to accomplish our objectives, whatever it took. And we knew that quite well, but we hoped to God that we might avoid the worst risks. When members of staff from other organisations working in the region are kidnapped, MSF tries to help them. Every day, MSF staff are doing their best to navigate increasingly delicate situations. While other organisations were standing in long queues at the checkpoints, we were avoiding them. We'd pass by without any stops at some checkpoints. Thanks to Kenny, we had worked out very carefully the rules of communicating with soldiers and the rules of behaviour at the checkpoints. Once again, working in Chechnya is becoming incredibly dangerous for humanitarian staff, and now the risk of kidnap is also back. If and when a kidnapping does happen, it raises difficult questions for teams working in the region. When a member of MSF's staff is taken hostage, should the organisation speak out in the media to create visibility and hopefully bring a colleague some much-needed protection? Or should MSF be as discreet as possible to avoid a rise in the hostage's so-called market value? Meanwhile, should MSF continue to publicly denounce the violence inflicted on people in the region at the risk of radicalising those parties to the conflict responsible for the kidnapping and place the hostage's life in danger? Lastly, is it a good idea to take active steps to secure the hostage's release, such as publicly pointing out a government's responsibilities, negligence or even complicity, or is it better to do the opposite and avoid a government digging in its heels? Today, we say enough. Even war has rules. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There should not be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. I'm Nick Owen. This is Speaking Out. War Crimes and the Politics of Terror in Chechnya, 1994-2004, to a podcast by MSF. Episode 6, Kidnapped by Mistake. Kenny Gluck has been working with MSF Holland in the North Caucasus for a year, and his previous experience and knowledge of the region is working in MSF's favour. He continues to speak out in the international media, in particular targeting the Russian press where MSF hopes to raise awareness in Russian society about the fate of the civilian population in Chechnya. Here, his words have been voiced up. Our communication was supposed to expose and humanise what was going on inside Chechnya. The image of it was largely of the military aspect, the bombing of Grozny and so on, and we were trying to give it a more personal human character. And that's why in our reports we were trying to introduce a lot of stories of people who were encountering this and trying to bring it into the Russian media. I knew a lot of Russian journalists because I'd been a journalist in Moscow. And because I spoke Russian, I felt comfortable doing it in Russian and nobody else did. 
On the 22nd of December 2000, Kenny is interviewed on a Russian TV channel, NTV, together with a Chechen doctor from the MSF team and the pro-Russian administrator of Chechnya, Ahmed Kadyrov. Kadyrov's a former rebel commander who'd been named head of the administration by Russia back in July. Kenny talks openly about the war and the continuing violence against civilians in Chechnya. We cannot speak about atrocities as something that happened in the past, he says, speaking in Russian. Children who get killed and wounded, now as before, are brought to hospitals in Chechnya. Kenny again. It was a live broadcast and a lot of people said that I insulted the Russians on Russian television. I don't think that's true. Russians were incredibly ignorant about what was going on in their own country and what was being done by their army. Having gone on to Russian television, gone to the Russian media and provided a little bit of the human face of what was going on with the Chechens, we created a domestic pressure. I think it was positive in a moral sense, much more than in a practical sense. On the 10th of January 2001, all MSF sections put out a press release. It's the press release they've been dreading. The International Humanitarian Aid Organization, Médecins Sans Frontières, strongly condemns the attack on a humanitarian convoy and the capture of an MSF relief worker in Chechnya yesterday. Kenny Gluck, a US citizen, was taken by unidentified armed individuals yesterday afternoon while travelling in a clearly marked humanitarian convoy in western Chechnya. Other members of the relief convoy managed to get away. MSF demands the immediate release of Mr Gluck unharmed. Colleagues are worried about Kenny's well-being, but the kidnapping is not entirely unexpected. As this Chechen surgeon working with MSF remembers, their words are voiced up. The evening before, I told Kenny that I'd heard some people were preparing to kidnap him. It was his last week and he was about to finish his mission in Chechnya. We had an idea that we needed to personally know all the rebel commanders, so we had a list of people we had to meet and explain to them what MSF is. For security, Kenny wanted to transfer this completely joined up system to the next coordinator. The Chechen surgeon, Kenny, and a colleague set off in a car. After a near miss when a military convoy is blown up just in front of them, they finally reach the Stariatagi district, just south of Grozny. While visiting the hospital, the situation takes a dangerous turn, and they soon realise that they have two options, to stay in the hospital overnight or go back to Ingushetia. With a couple of staff from Action Against Hunger, also known as ACF, they head for Ingushetia in two cars. The ACF staff in one, Kenny, the surgeon, and a colleague named here as M in the other. The hope is that with Kenny with them, no one will dare to attack. The MSF surgeon from Chechnya. Again, they're voiced up. We'd decided to leave the village, not by the normal road, but by a dirt track which we hadn't used before. We thought they'd already made an ambush on that road, so if we took another one, we'd be able to snake through. But those guys were very well equipped and communicated with each other well. I was driving, M was in the passenger seat, and Kenny was in the seat behind me. Jonathan, the ACF coordinator, was in front of us with his driver, A. We were blocked by three vehicles. 
when he tried to reverse, A actually hit my car and my car went off. The kidnappers jumped out of their vehicles and started to shoot in the air. M and I were pulled out of the vehicle. I started to speak when they hit me in the head with a rifle butt. Two of them stuck the rifle barrel to my ribs and they said, don't move. Kenny said, stop. He came out of the car, then went back into the car and pulled out his notebook and laptop. Then he was taken away. Two vehicles left with Kenny and the third one waited there with us with these guns pointed at us for about 30 minutes. Then they left as well. A and Jonathan left immediately. I left my car behind because it had been hit pretty badly and the whole front of it was broken. I took another car and went back to Ingushetia. This attack was just 200 metres away from a checkpoint. Kenny and MSF have prepared for this situation, as Kenny explains. His words have been voiced up. From the beginning, I was the best prepared hostage. I always had a kidnap bag with me, 24 hours a day. Toothbrush, toothpaste, change of clothes, medicines and a big book with me all the time. We knew that kidnapping was a big risk, so we had a strategy in case it happened, and it was very detailed regarding who our local advisors were. We had this developed with the staff and written out before the kidnapping. We knew it was dangerous, and that's why we had a kidnapping plan. That's why we had these discussions with the staff. We said things like, are you willing to take a risk of assassination? Are you willing to have a risk of kidnapping? Before people went to Chechnya, we used to show them a video of what happened to hostages. Many humanitarian organisations think that the kidnapping is a warning from the Russians to limit the number of aid workers assisting the Chechen refugees. But within MSF, opinions are divided. On the 26th of January 2001, the MSF France Board of Directors meets to discuss the situation. The minutes read... We need to decide whether we can remain involved in this situation and accept that if we change to a remote control operation, we'll deprive our mission of its ability to speak out. It seems to me that the chronology of events highlights the gradual increase of the threat, uh, in particular the precise targeting of MSF for its role of witnessing, which was ensured by the presence of international staff. We need to be aware of this threat in order not to be provocative and endanger Kenny's safety. We need to make a symbolic gesture to show that we have understood and that we don't intend to raise the stakes. We cannot have this discussion without thinking about how we will be perceived by the kidnappers. At least, it seems to me that this should be our main concern. It seems from my viewpoint that, for Kenny's safety, changing to remote control would make our message to the kidnappers less clear. Furthermore, remote control implies, as I see it for this particular moment, that we continue to make one-off visits, which are still very dangerous. These abductions show how vulnerable we are as they force us to stop speaking out, denouncing the credibility of the Council of Europe, which has now readmitted Russia and withdrawing from activities in the field. When we look at how Médecins du Monde are operating, you can see that they behave differently by focusing on long-term work rather than building their image. The board decides to suspend all MSF operations in Chechnya, but keep their programs in the other Caucasus republics. Action Against Hunger and UNHCR follow suit. 
The various sections also have different approaches to speaking about Kenny's kidnapping in the media. MSF USA are in favour of diplomatic efforts, and aside from one press conference with Kenny's brother, keep their involvement with the press to a minimum. A member of the MSF USA programme department explains, their words have been voiced up. We wondered what should be done. First of all, we called the French for advice about how to manage the initial contacts with Kenny's next of kin. Graziella Godin, who'd managed the business around Christophe André's kidnapping in 1997, told us, Firstly, you have to get their confidence straight away. Secondly, you have to show that you are determined and that you are managing, that everything is under control. Otherwise, they will undertake their own initiatives. New York imposed the channel of communication. We were under a lot of pressure because of the family. American NGOs wanted to get involved. The American government wanted to deploy its intelligence agencies in Chechnya. The Americans were interested in the region, as there were very fundamentalist Muslim groups there, and I think they were interested with respect to the fight against terrorism. In fact, the people at the FBI we spoke to did not seem very well informed. It was really problematic. That's why I said that we should not go to see the American administration without a definite strategy and a precise request. Indeed, the first thing they asked us is what we wanted to do. We did not want a public statement. We preferred to work behind the scenes. MSF has no idea whether it's the Russians or the Chechens who've kidnapped Kenny, but they suspect that if it was the Russians, then they'd done it to keep MSF quiet and make their staff leave the region. We wanted the Americans to say that it was not good that someone had been kidnapped in the region. But we did not want to highlight the fact that Kenny was an American national. We asked them for silent diplomacy, but nothing official. The only time there was public communication was two days after the kidnapping. Daniel, Kenny's brother, spoke publicly on behalf of the family at a press conference. He said that his brother was a humanitarian worker who had been kidnapped while doing his work for the people of this country. We wanted to disassociate him from anything to do with American policy and say that he was something who had nothing to do with politics. The strategy was therefore to tell the kidnappers that they had got the wrong target by playing the humanitarian card. Anne Fouchard is MSF France's Deputy Communications Director. I remember it was on Sunday when we found out that Kenny had been kidnapped. Kenny gave evidence to the Council of Europe and then he was kidnapped at the beginning of January. I was very shaken, and I asked myself whether we hadn't stuck our necks out too far to end up with these problems. In terms of communication, our instructions were to be prudent. I think that a kidnapping of a member of our team in Colombia happened at about the same time, and we had the same reaction to it. I was in favor of our speaking publicly about Kenny's kidnapping, but I fell in line with the general opinion. We managed Kenny's kidnapping and the one in Colombia in much the same way, by keeping quiet. We arranged for others to follow through, uh, diplomatically, for instance. We did not have much to go on, but sensing that things were being negotiated in New York, I did not get overexcited about saying that we absolutely had to give it more visibility. The day after the kidnapping, MSF puts out a press release expressing their concern over Kenny's state of health and to counter allegations swirling in the press. 
Recent Russian media reports have suggested that MSF was working illegally in Chechnya and have even accused the organisation of purposefully orchestrating the abduction to gain international attention. MSF refutes all such accusations and reiterates that it has been carrying out its operations in the region with the full authorization of the Russian authorities. All the relevant documents confirming the legal status of MSF operations were offered to the Presidential Aids Office this afternoon, with a request for an explanation regarding the previous accusations. Speculation is rife about where Kenny Gluck is being held and by which group, with each party blaming the other. The Russians are blaming a radical Islamic group, the pro-independence Chechens are blaming the pro-Russian Chechens, while others are blaming the Russians, citing their lack of action to look for Kenny as evidence. An article in the French newspaper Le Monde reads, The abduction was carried out in a village controlled by the Russians, by eight masked giants in identical new uniforms, one of whom spoke Russian without an accent, according to a reliable witness. In addition, any war act attributed to the Chechens is always followed up by cordon and search action, whereas the Russian military waited three days before cleaning up in this particular village, according to Memorial. On the 25th of January, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe cancels the sanctions they'd imposed on Russia nine months earlier for its conduct of the war in Chechnya. The Council's parliamentarian and British rapporteur, Lord Judd, launches an appeal for Gluck's release, just after condemning what he calls, quote, violations of humanitarian law by Chechen separatists and terrorist activities. The appeal is seen as indirectly accusing the Chechens for Gluck's kidnapping. The section Kenny Gluck works for, MSF Holland, has been trying to get as much press coverage for the kidnapping as possible in the media but they decide not to comment on the Assembly of the Council of Europe's announcement, as this email from the MSF Holland communications officer to the communications network demonstrates. Media-wise, we are looking for ways to keep the story alive, but we have to be extremely careful not to fuel the discussions about our legal status, about our advocacy statements last year about Russian politics, etc. In the first week, we got involved in discussions and speculations about the who and why behind this abduction, we believe this is not in Kenny's interest, and we should prevent this from happening again. On the 4th of February, nearly a month after he was kidnapped, MSF announces the release of Kenny Gluck. In a short telephone discussion this afternoon, Mr Gluck confirmed his release. He is now under safe protection of the competent Russian authorities. The priority for MSF is now to work on a safe return of Mr Gluck. The Russians hold Kenny for another two days, asking him to take part in a press conference, saying they weren't responsible for his kidnapping. Interviewed later, Kenny Gluck remembers what happened. His words have been voiced up. I was released to one of our staff's houses. We tried to arrange that he smuggled me out to MSF, but he said, it, it's too dangerous, I have to give you over to the Russians because we might get killed. He said that there were a lot of rumours that they wanted to re-kidnap me or assassinate me. He was very scared. He had a contact who called the Russian army by radio and they drove me to the Russian army base in Stariatagi. I spent the night there. Then I was driven to the Russian army base in Khankala, just east of Grozny. Then I spent another night in Khankala and so I spent two nights with the Russian army. I didn't sleep at all both of those nights. 
They refused to release me because they wanted me to go on television and thank the Russians for rescuing me, which I refused to do. They threatened me and said, we're not going to release you until you do this. I started to threaten them, saying, if you don't let me out, I'm going to call this a second kidnapping. This is ridiculous. It's already been two days since you said I was released and I'm not released. I had written a handwritten message, which I managed to send out with a friend of his. So MSF actually knew I was released. The message said, the Russians now have me, not the Chechens. Follow up with the Russians. So MSF was already putting pressure on the Russians, saying, we know you have him. Where is he? Then on the second day, they let me make some phone calls. So I called MSF and I called my father just to say I'm in a Russian army base. At a brief press conference in Moscow on the 8th of February, Kenny Gluck says he has no idea who kidnapped him and he doesn't want to speculate about their identity. On the 11th of March, the Russian television station NTV announces the arrest of two men accused by the Russian interior minister of Kenny Gluck's kidnapping. One of the men is close to the Chechen pro-independence commander, Shamil Basayev. The next day, the Chechen independence website, Kavkaz Center, publishes a letter from Basayev that was addressed to Kenny Gluck before his release. Dear Kenneth Gluck, the high military Majlis Shura of the Mujahideen apologizes for your detention and informs you that, thanks to Allah, you are free. An unhappy misunderstanding occurred which, however, could be explained. A group of our Mujahideen decided on their own to liberate several of their comrades in exchange for you. There were many pretexts to do so, and Russians make them feel that they can exchange even ten people for a foreigner. We have no possibility to be in permanent contact with all our groups, and that was the reason for our comrades' acts on their own. Another reason was our fighters' weak knowledge of Sharia, To avoid all the misunderstandings and rumours, we decided not to solve the problem in the way of superiors' orders, but transferred it to the High Sharia Court under the High Military Majlis Shura. MSF France's president is furious with the Dutch for not telling the others about this letter. Jean-Hervé Bradol. Here, his words have been voiced up. What I understood from this story was that the kidnappers wanted to make a deal with the Russians, They had Russian prisoners and thought they could swap them with the Russian security services, the FSB. I think this is where the FSB got involved by saying clearly that if they had a Westerner, they would make a deal. At MSF Holland, they told me that when Kenny was released, they were under the impression that Basayev's group was assuming responsibility for the release but did not want it talked about too much. They felt that the fact that this information was circulating could irritate this group and jeopardised the safety of MSF. Basayev did not want it to be known that he was so deeply involved. This was the only explanation that they gave us. We got very angry with them, not only us, but also other directors in the international movement, when Basayev later spoke, saying that we don't understand why MSF does not mention that Gluck's release was thanks to us, etc. He published the famous letter that he had given to Kenny, In that letter, he invoked the word of Ashura, the word of a Muslim, which had been given as a guarantee of safety. We are men of our word. I had a fairly harsh discussion with Austin Davis, Director General of MSF Holland, about the fact that they had hidden the letter from us, that they had lied to us. For the sake of our team's safety, 
it is important to keep the other sections informed. I warned him that if something like this happened again, I would take serious institutional action against him and MSF in his capacity as Director-General and would call him to account individually. I think that hiding the existence of this letter was not a collective decision made by MSF Holland. Rather, it was made by a small group of individuals. I do not think that the board of MSF Holland was aware of this kind of thing. However, MSF Holland's director, Austin Davies, says the others did know about the letter. I smuggled the letter out. You know, I th- you know we thought this, was, this letter was, was gold dust and I had it hidden in a scarf as I went through customs and we were being stopped and we knew that customs knew who we were as we left. So it was, very, it was real spy and dagger stuff, cloak and dagger stuff. And we got back to Holland and then, you know, various things happened and, and a report was released. And one of the first things that we called a meeting of the directors of operations for the five sections who came over. And we debriefed them on what happened. And we even passed around the original letter with an accompanying um, official translation. And we passed it around. We didn't let people keep a copy, but we passed it around so everyone saw it. And, and it didn't seem to be a big deal. It was much later that rumours started flying that we were withholding stuff. And I mean, I think in background, there's two kind of context things to consider. The, fir- the first is that Chechnya was an extremely difficult operational environment. You had to have a lot of local knowledge to operate there. You had to have extraordinary security procedures. And so it was, it was very heavily managed around access and around and around knowledge so so that's certain maybe that kind of secretness rubs off on on msfers so by the end it just became a, an internal joke you know because there was nothing that we could do that that would persuade people that we were sharing information we were accused of of hiding information from our own board and we'd share the letter we'd share the report we'd given respective briefings i mean this was a big event so we were very much held to account Regardless of what happened, no one is entirely sure why Kenny Gluck was kidnapped in January 2001, including Kenny himself. His interview has been voiced up. To this day, we don't know what went wrong. It's fair to say we were not cautious enough. On the one hand, with the communication, we knew there was a risk, but we thought it was worth it. In the end, we said, this is why we're here. If we didn't want to take risks, don't come to Chechnya. The reason why they called me in to open the mission was because they couldn't go otherwise, because they thought it was too dangerous. Next time. As eyewitness accounts of massacres in Chechnya start to emerge, the outside world begins to hear the full extent of what's happened in the country during these last couple of years of war. While rounding up the victims, they pillaged the houses. Televisions, tape players, and what they couldn't take, they threatened to destroy unless they received payment. Mistreated people, broke window panes in the hospital, broke down doors, and opened boxes of medicines looking for hidden money. Then they probably carried out the interrogations and torture by electrocution. The victims could easily be heard by the civilians who hadn't been arrested. MSF tries to restart its operations in Chechnya, but there are delays due to security issues, and for now, the only programs in the country are run through remote control management from Dagestan. Most of MSF's Caucasus staff are behind the return and support MSF speaking out in the media. But the pro-Russian authorities in Chechnya are making things difficult at every turn. 
This MSF Speaking Out podcast is based on an original MSF case study called War Crimes and Politics of Terror in Chechnya, 1994-2004. It's written by Lawrence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out Case Studies series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is written, produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Interviews are recorded by Lucy Dearlove. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet, and Rebecca Golden-Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. Extracts are read by Didi Bellos and Matthew Wade. The voiceovers are by John Biddle, Christopher Bockman, Lucy Dearlove, Kevin Halliwell, Clive Hayward, Chris Kellum, Andrea Rangecroft, and Alex Vincent. The music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Austin Davis and Anne Fouchard. To read the full case study and discover others, please go to our website, msf.org speakingout. Thanks for listening. <laughs>